Contesting an estate can be a long and emotional process, and that's why it's so important to have all the information before you start. I'm Catherine Henry, and in this episode of Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers, we're looking at the complex process of contesting an estate with practice leader Rob Dilley. Hi, I'm Rob Dilley, Senior Associate and Practice Leader in Relationship Law at Catherine Henry Lawyers. If you find yourself in a situation where you believe there's been an injustice, it's good to have someone experienced in resolving disputes on your side because a good dose of honest and reliable feedback can save a lot of pain in the future. And that's what we're looking at in today's episode of Law Matters, a bit of honest and reliable feedback around the tricky area of contesting an estate. And I'm very glad to welcome someone who has a long career in solving very difficult disputes, Jane Needham, SC. Jane is a senior barrister, and what we call in legal land, a senior counsel, who also works as a mediator and a collaborative practitioner. Jane is known for her work at the bar in equity cases, that is cases involving disputes about such things as wills, estates, issues surrounding trusts, among other things. In addition to her equity practice, she's worked on royal commissions, inquests and inquiries. She's also known for her work in the organisations that regulate barristers. She was the president of New South Wales Bar Association some years ago and also has worked tirelessly promoting issues impacting on women lawyers. As you can see, Jane is extraordinarily busy, so we are very lucky that she's been able and prepared to speak to us today about some of the issues that come up when working on cases involving will disputes. Jane Needham, welcome. Thank you very much, Rob. Contesting or challenging estates can be emotionally volatile as an area of work. Do you find that in general, it's common for people to challenge or contest a will? Well, I think in my line of work, I only see the people who do challenge uh, a will. And so my sense of that is fairly skewed. But having been through a couple of um, estate administrations, both as an executor and in my own family, um, my feeling is that most people generally accept the terms of a will, but the percentage of people who do seek to challenge it embark on a very difficult and emotionally laden journey. Okay, so there are some obvious reasons as to why estates might be contested family tensions before and after death or disappointed expectations, or in the case of blended families, where the outcomes are not as simple as in nuclear families. Are you finding that this is a growth area within the law? Definitely. The Supreme Court has recently uh, reorganised its succession and family provision list, and the judges are finding um that there's an enormous amount of work. There's something like 100 cases in the list every week. They're not new cases, but they're cases that are being actively case managed. So it is a growing part of the, the work of the Supreme Court and the work of barristers and solicitors. And I think part of that is the enormous um, growth in real estate property prices since, say, the last 30 years. Um, 30 years ago, it was possible to buy a house on a regular income, uh, now it it is almost out of reach of people on, on regular incomes, people you know, working everyday jobs. And that, I think, has made 
the family house or the you know if somebody has a family house and a couple of investment units they're worth multiple millions of dollars and it, it just becomes the the pot that people can have access to that might change their lives another aspect of it is of course not so much just the money and a lot of people come and say it's not the money that counts it's it's their place in the family it's the way that they see themselves as a family member it's a way of working out their relationship with their departed parent or spouse, uh, sometimes a child, and it's it's a way of um, trying to set in their minds the story straight about their part in the family. So it can be, I need more money, all the way up to, I was very disappointed with how my parents treated me, and this is a way to make it better, and everything in between. Well, I know that uh, when I've worked on matters where a blended family is involved, there is a real sense of, um, at least on the behalf of some of the children, a sense of disenfranchisement because the blended family, might have the two parents might have been together for a very long time, but then when one of those parents passes away and leaves their house and the bulk of their estate to the other parent, the children of the parent that's passed feel very upset about that. How important is it to advise those who are often grief-stricken, sometimes very angry family members, before they go to legal proceedings? It, it's really important. And there are three different kinds of ways of working out a dispute such as this. Uh, the first is the traditional way of just starting proceedings and hitting someone with a statement of claim or a, fa- or a summons and taking them to court. And that's really the nuclear option. I saw Oppenheimer on the weekend, so I say that with a degree of awe. Um, The next way of doing it is to do either a formal or an informal mediation, and these can go along with the court proceedings. And almost every succession matter is now required to go through a mediation process, process through the Supreme Court. And the third way is quite a new way of dealing with it. And you mentioned in the opening that I do collaborative process, and that's a new way of resolving proceedings where the lawyers work together along with the parties to try and sort it out. It's not adversarial. Uh, It's not a mediation, but it's a, a process whereby everyone collaborates in working out what's in the estate, what everyone needs, how the needs can be met from the estate, and it um it, it excludes litigation as an option. You can always go to litigation afterwards, but while you're working collaborative process, you take away that litigation option. And it's quite new in wills and estates. It's very established in family law, but um, there's a number of practitioners in Sydney who are trying to bring collaborative process into resolving um, succession disputes in the same way that family lawyers have been resolving family law disputes for many years. Well, I practice in family law, as, uh, and that's a large part of my practice, and collaborative lawyers um, are servicing more and more, and uh, I think it's a very intelligent and appropriate way to deal with family disputes. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I have to say um, I've only been trained in it for now. I did the masterclass this year. Um, we're still trying to get some a groundswell of solicitors trained because they're the ones who see people right at the outset and can pick the disputes that would be more suitable to collaborative process. But I would say that almost all disputes go through 
the formal litigation process, which is, of course, much more emotionally difficult and sadly much more expensive. So this next question sort of rides on the the coattails of that last answer. Why do you think people do go ahead and take action? And what I'm looking for here is your views on how emotionally fueled these actions are. I always ask people when I first see them, and I should probably just explain to people who may not be trained lawyers, that a barrister is a bit like a specialist advocacy consultant. Most of my clients are solicitors, other lawyers who bring their clients, the regular people, in to see me because the matter is going to court. So proceedings may have already been started or people want to know what kind of action they can bring against an estate. So I see people when they're right at the beginning of that process and I always ask them, what do you want out of this process? What do you want to see at the end of it? And people who say, well, I'd really like a deposit on a house, that's actually they're actually the easy people because, I'm sorry, the easy cases, because the outcome that I can achieve is money uh, from these proceedings. But I've had some really interesting answers. Some people um, point to things like their mother giving their sister-in-law her engagement ring and being fueled by a sense of grief, which is not anything to do with the value of the engagement ring. It's to do with their place in the family. Or another one I had was someone who whose father gave or left his kangaroo jersey, he played for Australia at some point, uh, to a different child than he always thought he'd been promised that. And often it is a, a profound sense of unfairness. Say it's a very large estate and we're seeing more and more of these where there is really significant wealth tied up in um, usually a first or second generation business oper- operation. And there's, as you've said, maybe two sets of families, the children of the first marriage, the children of the second marriage, um, and one or one of those families is favoured, quite often the second marriage family. And the children of the other family, while they may be provided for quite comfortably by non-billionaire standards, or non-millionaire standards, see what the other children have got and and are fueled by that sense of injustice. And I think one way that a lot of these disputes can be, if not avoided, at least perhaps minimised, is for people to be very open with what they're doing in their will when they do come to um, make a will, particularly where there are a lot of assets and they're not just leaving you know, the, the family home four ways or something like that. Having a process where you can talk about what's happening and and engage people in that. And that's another thing that you can do um, in collaborative process, succession planning, is finding out where people sit in relation to the assets and how how the parents or the, the family intends to leave that. And it's something that involves quite a deal of planning and awareness and so often I have people, because I do a bit of succession planning as well, people come in and they want to know what might happen if they leave their estate a particular way and how do they avoid challenges. And um, they always say, you know, if I die. And I always want to say, no if about it. <laughs> Let's plan for it, you know, because it is going to happen. And I think there needs to be a lot more of a discussion around um, assets, uh, how assets are going to be left after death because 
telling people, you'll be fine, I'm, I'm going to look after you, creates an expectation in their head, which is almost always not borne out by what they actually get. So it's much better to be clear, I think. That suggestion of creating a kind of a compact or a broad understanding with the larger family in secession planning, is that a dangerous territory to enter into? It, it ca- certainly can be. It's more common, I find, in rural families where there is a, an expectation of the farm being passed down to the farmer children. And in the past, it was usually sons, but I'm seeing more and more families where the daughters are the ones who take on the farming role and the sons go off and study something or uh, live in the city. But it can be very difficult. Um, I had, um, I've had a number of cases where uh, because of the tensions between a parent and children and a parent and a new de facto or proposed wife or husband, um, they've had a discussion about that. And in one case, um, the, the relationship actually broke up because the discussions couldn't be determined appropriately. Because there really are only two ways that you can satisfactorily you know, um, lock down what's going to happen. One is through the family law process where there's a binding financial agreement and you'd be very familiar with that, Rob. And the other way is having a, Re- a Family Provision Act release where you give away your rights to make a claim on the basis that you get something either now or in the will. So you agree in advance to what you're going to get and you release your rights. But both of those um, involve a fairly high degree of formality and in the family provision um, side of things needs the approval of the court. So everyone needs to be completely on board with this and uh, there are, of course, cases in, in estate matters where there have been binding financial agreements that have been set aside because of the lack of really proper independent legal advice at the time. BFAs are notoriously difficult, um, both in the preparation, but also for the fact that they are, as you've just pointed out, often set aside for a range of reasons. And one of those can indeed be insufficient legal advice. Because when the court is kept out of that decision-making process, it's up to the lawyers to make sure everything is nailed down. I just want to move on uh, now to another question, and this concerns protected estates. Um, And I wanted to ask you uh, about when someone is no longer capable of looking after their own assets in a protected estate, could you just outline what the main considerations are that you see when you're looking at a protected estate and the considerations that might need to be unpacked for people? Yes, it's it's a really difficult um, process and Justice Lindsay of the Supreme Court has written some articles on management of estates um, from life into death and and pointing out how it's, it's, it's an art, not necessarily two sections. Um, so when you have somebody who is elderly and perhaps losing capacity... Uh, that's the usual way, although other people can lose capacity. Uh, people have to start making decisions for them, and there needs to be proper planning about that. One of the ways you can plan for that is to talk to your parent, or if you're an older person, talk to your children, 
about who is going to manage your estate if and when you lose capacity. So you need two documents, um, an enduring power of attorney and an enduring guardianship. Guardianship makes decisions such as health decisions, where to live, and power of attorneys, attorneys make financial decisions. So if you have those set up, it should be a reasonably clear process who gets to make the decisions moving into a state where you don't have capacity. Um, But if you don't have those and you need those documents, then you need to go to the tribunal um, to get a guardianship order or a financial management order. And again, that's an expense and an emotional aspect and can be contested. So you may end up in the Supreme Court fighting about who gets to make decisions for mum in the nursing home, and that's not fun for anyone. If there's no will um, and someone, it's not appropriate that they die and test it, then you can ask the court to make a will for someone who has not got capacity. And there might be a number of reasons why such a decision might be made. One is um, where the family dynamics are such that um, uh, the distribution on intestacy, where it goes to, say, all the children in equal shares is not appropriate, or say someone is legally married but their partner has left um, and the will, the previous will left everything to the partner, that's no longer appropriate, so the court can make a will readjusting the shares. Um, So all of these things need to be dealt with carefully and with a lot of discussion in the family, but quite often they're they're done, um, these actions are taken almost as a strategic move um, or as a way of cutting out other people from decision-making processes. And again, talking, if even if it's through a an informal mediation or a, a family discussion with an expert or everyone there with their lawyers, all of these things can actually remove rather than create antagonism and difficulty for the family. Quite often... Mum or dad are completely unaware of what's going on with these battles, but um, people can get very, very uh, mired in them. I'm Rob Dilley, Senior Associate with Catherine Henry Lawyers, talking to Jane Needham SC around contesting an estate on this episode of Law Matters. Jane, what do you need to be able to prove to successfully contest an estate claim or challenge a will? Well, there are two ways that you can contest an estate and generally they fall into two categories. One is family provision where you're seeking more money out of the estate or some money out of the estate and the other one is where you're challenging the validity of the will. And I might deal with the first, the second one first, the validity uh, claims are uh, usually that the deceased didn't have capacity to make a will. So you might have somebody who's got dementia or uh, some other kind of cognitive impairment making a will. And the question there is you have to show whether they understood what a will was, uh, whether they understood the claims on their bounty, like who are the people who would naturally be someone they'd leave money to, and whether they had any um, uh, delusions which affected their ability to make a will. Uh, There's also, in that category, undue influence, if somebody was uh, placed under extreme pressure to make a will, uh, and a couple of other 
technical ways that it can be set aside. But that deals with the validity of the will. And if you're successful in showing that the person didn't have capacity or was unduly influenced, that will goes away and the previous will comes into contention. Or if there was no previous will, the estate's administered on intestacy. And that's a statutory formula whereby particular categories of people, spouse, children, get particular shares. Family provision is where you you accept the validity of the will, but you ask the court to adjust the shares that that the estate is being administered so that you are provided for properly and adequately. And that means that you, you need to show, firstly, that what you have been given is not adequate for your proper education advancement in life and maintenance, and secondly, that what you would spend it on, putting this in very bald terms. So what do you need and how would you spend more money if you got it? So if you go to court and say, you know, I don't have a house of my own. If I had a deposit of this amount, I could buy a house which would suit my family needs. Or say, you know, I did get a quarter share of the estate, but I'm very unwell and all my siblings are much better off and I should have more. So you really need to put out a case for the will being, the terms of the will being changed. Just before we move on, um, you mentioned a phrase a moment ago that I think is probably well known to a lot of people, undue influence. And I'm certainly seeing um, more inquiries about this particular issue. And I might just ask you to unpack undue influence and what might need to be shown in order to support such a claim. Well, that's a very interesting question because I think the tide is turning a little on undue influence. Um, It used to be that everyone always pleaded it, but it very rarely got up. There was one case in, I think, the 1800s and another case recently where claims of undue influence have been successful. And the key is the word undue. You can influence someone to make a will. You can say every day, hey, mum, have you made a will leaving everything to me? And she'll go, not yet, darling. But as long as she feels completely free to make a will or to um, to revoke that will, that influence is fine. There's no harm in suggesting or even taking someone to a solicitor and saying, here's my mum, she'd like to make a will. But when when you cross the line is when that influence is undue. And in succession law, the test has normally been uh, where the person feels unable to do something else. It's a form of coercion almost. And one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is the crossover between coercive control, which, as you know, has recently been the subject of legislation in the criminal sphere, and the ability to make a will, because I think there are instances out there where the relation, not so much the will itself is subject to undue influence, but the relationship itself. And usually it's the woman in the relationship who feels unable to assert her own economic power, um, how that relationship impacts on the making of a will. And there's been no cases on that, but I'm just really interested to see how that will play out. It's an extraordinarily difficult threshold to reach, isn't it? because it it relies often on digging into the history of a relationship and where um, a person has made a will as testator and they've now passed away, it becomes almost impossible 
to prove undue influence on the making of that will without the testator being there to give some sort of evidence. Indeed, and where a will is made in front of a, a solicitor and there is no uh, suggestion of influence at that making of the will, it's very difficult to show what the influences were on making that will. So um, there are really, it, it's really a difficult field, but people particularly, come in, they come in, they go, she would not have made this will unless she was unduly influenced to make it. And quite often you need to spend quite a bit of time saying, well, that may be the case, but it would be easier to prove, for example, that the testator didn't have capacity. And the two are somewhat linked because people who don't have, who have lessened capacity or they may not have uh, lost enough not to be able to make a will, but they might have lost enough to resist being influenced. And again, it's a very fine line. I'm sure we could talk at great length about this. I have a case at the moment, oh, which, <laughs> which is um, right in the crosshairs. But for, the, for our purposes today, uh, I might just move on. Um, I want to talk about timeframes. So are there different timeframes for different types of matters? And what happens if, for some reason, someone can't start proceedings within the required timeframes? Yes, this is uh, a difficulty because I'm talking, of course, about New South Wales law. If you want to start a family provision case, you need to do it within a year of death. And quite often people are grieving, they're upset, um, they may not realise that what they get from the estate is not sufficient for their needs and then they need to bring a claim out of time. Uh, and you can bring a claim out of time, but you need the leave of the court and the court will look at a number of things. Firstly, the um, reasons for extension of time. Did you get legal advice? Um, did you protect your own interests? Did you just decide not to and then change your mind? Um, also, they'll look at the length of time and whether the estate has been administered so that people are being actively... So there's been some interesting cases in this area, in particular Loden and Loden, where the ex-wife of a man who had died without a will, was looking to receive part of his $5 million estate that by law had been left to the daughter that they both shared. Um, it's worth noting that they had been separated for 25 years and the divorce had gone through the family court. Interestingly, at first instance, a judge ordered the ex-partner to receive a lump sum of $750,000, but that decision was then appealed by the daughter and the appeal was allowed. In the end, it came down to the fact that the former spouse was not considered a natural object of testamentary recognition. Is this an example of just how murky the waters can get in this area? Yes, the issue of ex-spouses is interesting because they are entitled to make a claim under family provision legislation, along with stepchildren, people who've been in a close personal relationship with the deceased as long as they've been dependent upon them. So ex-spouses and what we might call dependents, including grandchildren, can make claims, but they need to show that there are what's called factors warranting the making of the application. And one of the issues with this particular ex-wife was that she, after separation, she pretty much made it her business to ruin the deceased life. She 
he was a doctor and she reported him to the medical complaints board and um, really, really made his life a misery. And when uh, generally with with ex-spouses, if there's been a property settlement, as the Court of Appeal said, that really takes you out of the category of who is an appropriate object of testamentary recognition. That's a fancy way of saying who would who would the community consider appropriate to get some money out of the estate? And the, the Court of Appeal found that she was she was not so entitled. And this can be the case. Um, spouses, de facto spouses at death um, and children have an automatic right to make a claim. They don't have to show factors warranting. But still, where people are significantly estranged and the generally speaking, where the blame can be more put on the applicant than the deceased, um, then you might not get into that category of, of people whom the community would consider that you should be left some more money. So your conduct, as well as their conduct, is one of the relevant factors that court will take into account. And that's why these matters are so emotionally overwhelming, because sometimes you're asked to um, consider um, and be cross-examined on the whole of your relationship with the deceased. And it's very it's very hard to grieve the loss of someone while you're still in active litigation about them. Yeah, it's a big ask of people, isn't it? It is, it is. And defendants are usually the person who the deceased has chosen as their executor, and quite often that's another family member. Sometimes it's an independent person, but it quite often it pits you know, the, the former, the, the, the spouse against the children of the first marriage or sibling against sibling, um, it can be very fraught for that reason because everyone has their own experience they need to bring to bear on the, on the evidence. Jane, we've covered a lot of ground here. There's <laughs> uh, a lot to cover. <laughs> now, for the, now for the most difficult question of all, um, are there any key takeaways that you'd like people to know, other than the obvious of no matter how young and fit you are, make a will? Well, no matter how young and fit you are, also make an enduring power of attorney and an enduring guardian. Because if you are, God forbid, um, the victim of a traumatic brain injury or you, say, uh, contract a, a disease, which makes, makes it difficult for you to look after yourself and your own issues, you need somebody trusted in there who can step in and make decisions. And I would suggest reviewing your will and the appointments under those documents every five years, because a lot can change in five years. If there is a question of contesting a will, if you've been left without enough from an estate or you feel that the will was not a valid will, then I would absolutely say, let's see if there's something you can do which does not involve litigation to start with. And I'm a bit talking against my own interests because I, I work as a litigator. So, um, but you know, the there is so many cases out there where you look at them and you just think, right, if somebody had just, if if the people had just taken a different route right at the beginning and a constructive rather than a destructive approach. Um, things might have been very different. It's often really difficult to persuade people that cooperation, collaboration is the better course it is. rather than competition and 
litigation because our society is so heavily constructed around competitiveness. It is. And I started out by saying that in answer to one of your first questions that my own experiences of being an executor have been very smooth. And I think that's because they were both in estates where people were able to talk to each other. And I think having an understanding of what you're entitled to under a will or telling your children or your spouse how you're going to do it and discussing it at that point, even though it feels really hard to do because we don't like speaking about the worst, um, I think it's a really constructive thing to do just to keep expectations under control. Jane, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Jane Needham, SC, thank you very much. Thanks to practice leader Rob Dilley for hosting this episode of Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers. I'm Catherine Henry, and if you're thinking of contesting estate or would like more information about your options, please do get in touch. My team will be able to guide you through the process and help you decide what will be best for your circumstances. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.